This week, Jeremy enjoyed a vacation, some time off. His parents came to uh, see their new grandchild, Sarah Joy, and I suppose Jennifer enjoyed having a few extra pairs of hands in the house. And so he asked me to prepare the message this morning. We're just continuing on with the sermon series in the book of Ephesians, and we're in chapter 1, unpacking the blessings that Paul is praising God for as he begins that letter. Uh, you know, the, the first thing I, that, that I learned when I took a college class in public speaking is never to thank the audience for, for the chance to speak to them. But you know, I'm just so grateful to God for the chance to, to share God's word with you this morning. Would you bow in prayer and just pray that God will use this time in our lives? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be with us as we open your word, as we turn to you. Father, that you would write your word on our hearts, that you would move us and change us through what you've said. Father, open our eyes to these blessings that you've poured out on us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, Last night, they killed a chicken on Channel 2. It was one of these reality-based educational TV shows. Uh, People, you know, some regular people like us who were uh, living in the Iron Age 2,500 years ago in England, and they had to, you know, go through all of whatever it takes to live in the Iron Age, living in grass huts and things like this. And so they had to learn how to, you know, slaughter their, their livestock and feed themselves and it's, it's interesting, you know, I think that uh, we live in a society in a time when people are very, very sensitive about the subject of death. And uh, they were interviewing one, one of the ladies there, you know, they had her talking to the microphone about her feelings about this poor chicken. You know, the chicken was just there, it was happy, it was, it was trusting everybody, it was having a good time, and it didn't realize everybody had this plot against it, and all of a sudden, you know, it's his life was being taken, and, and we were all assured, you know, by a, a voiceover that uh, there was an expert on hand to make sure that the, uh, there was as little pain as possible and that it would be as, as brief as possible for the chicken. And actually, of course, we weren't shown the death of the chicken, but uh, there was something gruesome of one of the kids playing with the chicken foot and operating with the tendons and things. But, uh, you know, we, we, we really do struggle with, with death. I, I, I see that more because I lived in Kenya for about 12 years, and I, I saw a different attitude about death there. Of course, it's, um, uh, it's painful, and, and it's difficult, and, and nobody's satisfied with it. But uh, what's really taboo in Kenya and East Africa is sex. You just don't talk about it, and you don't ever, I mean, a man and woman, a husband and wife won't even hold hands in public. You know, you, you give no indication that there's anything like this that goes on. You just don't acknowledge it. But, um, you, you know, this is, this is this painful thing in our lives that we, we, we see the finality, the, the futility of our lives, the, the emptiness of, of what we are stares us in the face when we realize that everything significant about me comes right to an end, and there's nothing added. There's no coda. It's over. And uh, so we, we read the accounts of these. That's what's so horrifying about the snipers in the Washington area. You've got a lady 
uh, Linda Franklin. She's, she's a cancer survivor. Uh, you know, she's, she's been through some things, and she's, she's learned and accomplished some things. She's an a a, a intelligence analyst for the FBI, and uh, she's uh, raised two kids of her own and a niece, almost single-handedly. Now she's happily married, and uh, her husband and she are going to move into a bigger house. She's out buying supplies at Home Depot, and next minute, She's on the pavement, and it's over. And we look at it, and we're so horrified because we realize that could be me. And everything that I've done, all that I am, could just be gone. And what does it mean? What's its value? And, uh, you know, in our society, to, to believe that you really have a value in life given to you by God is, is considered sort of a fantasy. Don't get too serious about that idea or people will start to check out your sanity. We are driven by a hunger. We're driven by a hunger for significance, for permanence, for real satisfaction, and for love. And, uh, you know, the, the first question, it seems, that, that kids start to ask each other is, what town are you from? What town do you live in? What part of town do you live in? And then it moves on. What school do you go to? And then uh, what team are you on? And who are your friends? And finally, it moves on. What college are you accepted to? And what college are you going to? And then what job do you have? And how much money do you make? And then the questions start to get creative. What town do you live in? What part of town do you live in? <laughs> what schools do your kids go to? What teams are they on? And where are your kids accepted to go to college? And uh, it, it, we just go in a circle, and what's it all for? And uh, we, we, we're driven, though. And we have to be driven. This, this desire for significance is what's good about people, and it's also something that's gone terribly wrong with people. And I think that what Paul is dealing with in Ephesians 1 is a root problem that people have, and it's connected with that desire for significance. And uh, I believe it's complex, the poor me syndrome, that I've got to do something for myself or nobody else is going to. I've got to look out for myself because it's just poor little old me. And, you know, I'm helpless and I'm needy, and I've got to put myself first. You know, what, what else can explain why our first parents, Adam and Eve, had to grab that fruit that had been forbidden to them and try to get something for themselves that hadn't been offered to them. I saw a TV show about Saddam Hussein and some Middle East analyst expert was explaining what, how Saddam Hussein fits into history and why he does what he does and what he's really after. And you know what it's all about? You know, you come to the end of it, yeah, he's... He's got this perspective of Muslim history, and he wants to make a great unified Islamic nation, of course, with himself as the head. But what it comes down to is he wants to make a permanent mark for himself. He wants to guarantee for himself some kind of lasting, permanent, transcendent acceptance and identity and significance for himself. He wants to really be the man. So... We've got this poor me syndrome, and, and it drives us. And it drives us to do things 
that aren't right. It drives us to grab and to grub. We get into grabbing and grubbing. Grabbing and being ready at any moment, whatever the opportunity, to get what we need for ourselves. And grubbing, being ready to do something more extreme than the next person to get it. I'll lower my standards lower than you will, and I'll get what I need for myself. And uh, the gospel comes and meets us with this root problem of ours with an amazing and uh, weighty and powerful and perfect remedy. And that's what Paul is giving us here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse, uh, verses 5 and 6. Uh, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And in this little statement about how God has adopted his people as sons, as children, we find the answer to our hunger and our need. Because, you see, he predestined us according to his pleasure and will. God has done what every adoptive parent does. He has used his power on behalf of someone who is weak and powerless. And, and then he has um, freely given us in the one he loves, his glorious grace. Grace is just a word for generosity. And so God has freely given us his free givingness, his generosity, his grace. And um, that's what every adoptive parent does, is that they give to, a, to someone who's needy. And, uh, and God has loved us. In love, he predestined us, and he's included us in the, in the loved one. And so we find in this doctrine of adoption, of being adopted as God's child, the words that fit with the longings that are in our hearts, but somehow we have a hard time making a connection. Those are very nice words about God's power for us and about his love for us, but you know, I still have this longing. And somehow there isn't, there isn't a connection. And, you know, Paul is able to just tell the people about how they've been adopted, and uh, yet he knows that that's not going to make the difference. So he praises God for the adoption, but then he prays for the people that they'll get it. And so when you look in the prayers that Paul prays, right here at the end of chapter 1 in verse 18 and 19, he prays for them really to comprehend the blessings of being adopted as God's children. And so verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And uh, it's, it's not enough for us to hear the message of adoption, but we need the Holy Spirit, the spirit of power, the spirit of revelation to come upon our hearts, to open our eyes and to open our minds, and to open our hearts to comprehend that God loves us because otherwise we keep on dragging our feet in the poor me syndrome and grabbing and grubbing. So, adoption is power for the weak. It's 
wealth for the poor and its love for the unloved. Adoption is power for the weak. And uh, in, in Roman society, they had a unique approach to adoption. It wasn't quite the way that we, think, we do things today, of course. But in Roman society, often a, a person will be adopted when they're an adult. And the reason for adopting someone was often to, to get an heir. You don't have an heir, and you, want, you need someone to inherit, sort of manage the, the household, and sort of take care of you in your old age, usually out of your own wealth. You can't go and adopt someone who's richer than you. You adopt someone who's poor. You have to be powerful. You have to be influential to adopt someone. And the great thing about being adopted is that all of your former debts are canceled, that you come into a whole new setting. You're in a new family. You have a new identity. And everything old is gone. And uh, what a powerful redemption. What a powerful rescue for someone who's, who's in dire straits to be adopted. And to be adopted by someone who's influential and, uh, and has some, some sway. It gives you some sway. You get to ride on his coattails. And God has adopted us. And it says in Ephesians 1 in our verses 5 and 6 that he predestined us that he used his infinite wisdom and his infinite power to bring about this situation that we should be adopted as his children, that our old situation, our old plight should be done away with and that we should have a whole new identity. So in Christ, we have God's power at work for us. Rescuing us from death, we have hope beyond the grave. Rescuing us from problems, we have a God who guides in all the situations that we face so that whatever comes into our lives, we know that God is working it out for good for those who love him. And uh, so we still do face you know, problems. A child of God can be shot by the sniper in Washington, just the same as anybody else. But we have a confidence that God uses whatever comes into our lives, whatever he allows into our lives, for good according to his plan. It's a wonderful plan beyond our imagination. But the, the kind of power that really seems to be at the center of Paul's interest and the center of becoming a child of God is a kind of power that God has exercised for us that may not be what we first uh, thought we needed Look in Ephesians 2, the first four verses. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. How much more powerless can a person be if he's dead? Dead in transgressions and sins and enslaved to Satan, the, the prince of the power of the air, who rules over those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, a desperate situation. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And this is the power of God. This is the power of the gospel. This 
is the great power that Paul is praying that God will open up our eyes to comprehend how vast and how wonderful it is that God is working in us to change us and to take away this poor me complex and replace it with love, to replace it with a, a sense of gratitude and of completion and of fullness, of satisfaction, because we've been brought into a family and given everything that we need. God works in us to give us what we truly need. He addresses our basic problem, which is this greed that tears apart our families, that tears apart our lives, that drives us downhill, that gets us into grabbing and grubbing and grabbing hold of every kind of thing that doesn't do us any good. And God meets us right at the heart of our need, our poor me syndrome, and changes our heart. And uh, when we hear that, we say, oh, so he had almighty power and all wisdom, and he chose to change my heart? Well, you know, God, that, that, maybe that problem wasn't as bad as I thought. You know, maybe my heart wasn't quite quite such a problem. You know, really, I have some other big problems over here. I'd appreciate it, you know, some improvement in my working situation, my family. Uh, and we, we decide that there are other things that we'd rather have, but God knows what our real need is. He addresses us at that point of need, that our heart needs to be changed, that we need to get over that poor me complex and to, to learn to find our joy in God, not in whatever we can grab and, and hold for ourselves. So God gives us a new heart. You know, God gave me a new heart. When, when I came to understand the gospel of Christ as a, a college student, as a freshman, when I began to hear God's word and to understand what it says, you know, I had to return some money to a little shop that I had shoplifted some things from. I had to give up some habits. There were some things that I was holding on to, drugs and alcohol, and uh, I had to put aside some things that I was grubbing for and grabbing after, and uh, there was a change in my life. There was a power that came into me that turned me around, and that is the wonderful power of God that's at work for us as his children. And it's continuing to work in our lives to turn us around. Adoption is God's power for the weak. Adoption is wealth for the poor. And uh, the, the purpose of money is satisfaction. That's the, the first thing you, you have to learn about money. You know, kids, here's, here's lesson number one. The first thing you've got to learn is if you don't have any money, you're not going to be happy. And the, the second thing... and. Uh, Money is for satisfaction. Wealth is for satisfaction. And God has poured out his grace. He's freely given us everything that we need, his glorious grace. He satisfies. God satisfies. And uh, instead of this poor me syndrome, we need to become satisfied. And uh, we can find satisfaction in God because of the gifts that he's given to us. And uh, look at uh, the kinds of gifts that 
that God gives us. The first thing, uh, the first thing he does, um, he uh, provides for, for our salvation. And then secondly, he pours out all kinds of blessings on us. It says here that, um, where am I? He's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. He, he's given us the Holy Spirit, verses 12 and 13. That he's given us the down payment of the Spirit. That uh, this is a, a, a deposit guaranteeing what will come. And, you know, we say, well, that's, that's great. It's good to have the Holy Spirit. But, you know, I'd, I'd really like to, to have some status. And Ephesians 2.6, he says, he's seated us, he's raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms, far above every ruler and authority, so he can display his grace in us. And we say, well, that's, that's really great, but you know, I'd like to have something now that I can enjoy. Ephesians 4, he says, uh, he's, he's, Christ has ascended into heaven like a, a champion, a victor, leading the, uh, the captives in his train. And verse 7, it says that he, he turns around and he gives gifts. He gives gifts. And Paul talks about how God gives us gifts of service and ability and power and things that we're able to do to serve him and please him. And, uh, and then there's armor in chapter 6. Something to enable us to continue enjoying all the wealth and the goodness that God has given us. To continue to be satisfied. He's provided us with everything we need. This spiritual armor of faith, of God's word, of prayer, to defend ourselves against all the, the, the lies of the devil that he would use to tear us down. You know, I'm the richest person that I know. I've, I've got everything I need. I have more than I could dream of. I've got a blank check. You name it, and I have it. You know, when when we moved to Kenya, when my family and I moved to Kenya, uh, I kind of, I was a missionary, and, and I knew about the spirit, I knew about the spirit-filled life, I knew all about the gospel, but you know, this poor me syndrome just follows us along. It follows us through life, and we, we can't shake it. I uh, got removed into Nairobi in February, and we wanted to move up country to a small town where we were going to live. And I went up to this town, Meru, to look for a house for us to live in, and I found one. It was the end of May, and I wanted to have that house, and I wanted to know that it wasn't going to be rented out to someone else. So I paid the, the deposit, and I paid the first month's rent, and they said I have to pay for the rent for the whole month of May. This was the last week of May. But I said, you know, I want this house. So I, I paid it. And then I said, I'll, we'll be moving in at the end of June. So we came up in, in June, and uh, I had to pay for the rent for the month of June, which was overdue, and then the month of July. So I came in, and I kind of thought, you know, maybe, maybe the landlord will just kind of forget about uh, the month of May. I wonder if I could just kind of get by with this. So I just wrote the check before I went in, and, uh, and I brought the check in and gave it to him, and he smiled at me, and he was nice and polite, and we talked, and, and I went home, and I thought, wow, it was great. I got away with it. You know, I just paid for the month of July, and now, you know, it was like June or May, whichever one it was, sort of got skipped. 
And uh, I thought, well, that's good. And I came back the next month, and he still had the check. And he said, well, you know, you know, Seth, there's one thing. Uh, you were supposed to pay for uh, the month of June and July. I think you, you, you forgot. You made a mistake. And um, so I, I played dumb. And I said, well, how, what do you mean? I, I paid. And, and I went through the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, I felt pretty bad. You know, I was praying for justice, Manyara, that God would give me a chance to share the gospel with him. And here I am, playing these games. And he, I don't, th- you know, I think I, I was able to pull it off. I think I did a good acting job. I fooled him, you know, but what about my heart? What about my heart? Later on, I, I came to find out, I got a letter somewhere from, from our office describing the, the income tax policy in Kenya. And I found out that even as a, a, a resident alien, that's what they called me because I wasn't a Kenya citizen, that I needed to pay income tax in, in Kenya. But somehow the, the, the government had never sent me any forms and I didn't have any information about this. And I asked some people about it and they said, well, you know, things are so uh, corrupt here anyway. If you pay the income tax, it just goes into someone's pocket. And, uh, you know, if they don't send you the forms, uh, you'll just fall through the cracks. They'll never catch up with you. And, uh, you know, I thought about that. And, you know, some other missionaries were telling me, you know, I've never paid income tax. We don't do it. We just don't do it. And why should you guys have to do it? Our mission doesn't. And I thought about it. And you know what? Something had changed in my heart. And that poor me syndrome, maybe, I don't know, it had slipped a little bit. Maybe I had thought a little more about God's love and his riches and his grace for me. Maybe the Holy Spirit had opened my eyes just a little bit more. Well, I gathered up my papers and I went down to the Revenue Department and I turned myself in and I paid two years of taxes and uh, got on the roll so I could pay my taxes every year. And, you know, where the money goes, that's not my problem. My problem is with my heart and my God. I've got to serve him. I've got to stand before him. Adoption is wealth for the poor. Jesus says, um, don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. For the pagans run after all these things, and your Father in heaven knows that you need them all, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So, God has adopted us. He's provided wealth for the poor. Adoption is love for the unloved. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's rejoicing. He's praising God for this blessing of adoption. He says, starting at the end of verse 4, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. It was in love that God did it. You know, um, my brother-in-law told me I was right. After his baby girl was born, he told me about the feeling that I had had when I was walking down a hospital corridor, just running to get something, I don't know what, and it suddenly dawned on me, I'm a father. And, you know, what, what it is, what it is this feeling that, that comes upon you and it just changes your outlook on life and you're different from then on. And I didn't look for it. I didn't expect it. You know, I'd seen the cartoons, you know, and there's always the, the dad who's all proud and he's running out giving, giving out cigars and things like that. And 
yeah, whatever. And uh, you know, I just thought, you know, people make that stuff up. You know, I ended up giving away a few chickens. I was managing a school farm. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's just something that overwhelms you. It just catches up with you, just surprises you. The, the joy, the pride of knowing that you're a father. And you know, I believe that God takes more pleasure and finds more joy in his son than in anything else. And, and that's why the, when he introduces Jesus Christ to us, he says, behold, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And uh, the refrain in the, in the book of John, the father loves the son. And right here in, in this text, that he has adopted us in, he's given us this grace in the one he loves. We are in the son that God loves. We have been included in Christ. How do we become sons of God? Because we're brothers of Christ. We're united with Christ. He's our new, our new head. And we're, we're united with him. We're beloved in him. God finds great pleasure in all of his adopted children. And so, uh, adoption is about love. Love brought us here. Each one of us, somehow or other, someone loved in order that we you know, went from as small as we were to as big as we are. Somewhere along the line, there was some love that moved someone. And that's why we're here. And you know, as you look at the whole world and all the wonderful things that are here and all the, the good things, I know there's a lot of bad too, but hey, you've got to realize that there are currents of love, massive, powerful forces of love at work between the Father and the Son that led God to create. And here we are. And here it all is. Love brought us here. What are we for? We're for love. Love God in love God chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He wants to love us and he's working to make us lovable. And uh, love is the bedrock. Love is the ground. Love is the final answer. If love is God's motive, that's what it's all about. That's why God does everything. And uh, so this love that we stand in, that God has loved me, that he loves me with his infinite love, his immeasurable love, that is the firm rock on which we can stand. We can look at who we are and what we are. We can face a doctrine like original sin because we have God's love for us. And so, um, the, the, uh, the hymn says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. There wouldn't be enough ink in an ocean to write down the love that God has for us. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no tongue has told what God has prepared for the ones he loves. He loves us so amazingly. And, uh, you know, what, what we do is we say, well, yeah, yeah, God loves you, God loves you. 
But you know, I don't want to. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to get controversial. Uh, I don't want to uh, say anything that that will be shocking to people. I don't want to upset people. And uh, when the unpopular people are around, and uh, nobody cares, I don't need to give them any respect. They don't count. I can shunt them aside. The people that nobody's watching out for, you know, they're not important. I just push myself ahead. Yeah, we, we know all this about God's love. I say it about how God's love is so massive, and we believe it, we rejoice in it, but we forget it. You know, as, uh, as New England Baptists, we have a wonderful heritage here. A heritage of, of holding on to the truth, a heritage of, of sticking to the Bible and to historic Christianity. And uh, actually, it's a heritage of being somewhat uh, intellectual in approach, in a way. You know, the, the caricature of Baptists is completely the opposite of what the history is of what really our identity and our heritage is. Because the character is that we're a bunch of wild, emotional people who shout at each other and harangue each other and you know, don't really think about things. But the, the, the heritage is one of really holding on to truth and probably being a little bit over-intellectual in our approach to Christianity. Maybe we are a little, a little too suspicious of the idea that the Holy Spirit could just change our lives today. And maybe we're a little bit too patient, trusting that eventually the ideas will sink in, eventually my heart will come around, and we're a little too patient with a sluggish heart. And maybe we just need to get on fire. Would you do something? Would you take this idea, this blessing of adoption, think about it this week, chew on it, mull over it, meditate on it, that God has loved you, that he's adopted you as his child. And will you ask God to open the eyes of your heart and help you get over that poor me complex and start living as God's son and move on to a higher plane of spirituality? We can. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would lift us up this morning, that you would raise us to a higher plane of spirituality, of trust in you, of joy, of satisfaction, that we would see what great love you've loved us with, that we would see what marvelous power you've put at work in our lives, that we would really experience the continuing work of your spirit, changing our hearts, and turning us from selfishness, from grabbing and greed, to service and to love for you. Father, help us to be satisfied in Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.